and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. So first of all, welcome to those of you who are here for the first time. Welcome back to those of you who have listened to previous episodes. We really appreciate all all of you for listening and sharing these conversations on social media. If you like today's episode or any other shows in the past, we'd really appreciate it if you'd go over to iTunes and write us a review. It really helps us as we continue to expand our reach. So thanks to all of you who have already done so, and hopefully you'll feel inspired to do so today as well. Also a bit about me, I work as an executive coach where I get to coach all kinds of corporate executives on their mindset, on their strategy, on their vision, and how they're showing up from a day-to-day basis. And I also work in the sports psychology realm where I work with athletes and sports teams also on their mindset and their vision. So I love what I do for a living. I get to work with fascinating people. And one of the things I've done in the last year is created a cohort for executives. So these are people that tend to be about 30 to 50 years old. They are usually at the C-suite level or the director level in the corporate world. And they're leaders in their company and they are in charge of managing and envisioning their company's future. So uh, if you're interested in joining the cohort. It's really for people that are obsessed with learning and growing. If you enjoy listening to podcasts like these and you want to continue to develop yourself personally and professionally, uh, feel free to reach out to me via email. My email is brian at blevinson.com or you can hit me up on Twitter as well at Brian Levinson and we can chat about if you are a good fit for the cohort. One of the benefits of my job is that I get to experience and observe and learn and watch and take notes from people like today's guest. So Mark Groves is somebody who I saw in action. I saw him run an all-day offsite for a company and Mark and his business 
partner, Connor, put on an amazing experience for a friend of mine. And Mark is somebody who is a human connection specialist. And I think putting a title on Mark doesn't really do him justice, but he is an emotional translator. He's a writer. He's a speaker. He's a coach. His clients range from businesses and leaders to couples and individuals. Mark really cares about the deepest of emotional connections that we have with ourselves and that we have with other people. And he really loves studying love. And Mark is somebody who studies relationships and communication and is very thoughtful about how we're showing up for ourselves and how we're showing up for those that we care most about. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Mark. It's true. It's genuine. And it's authentic to who he is and what he knows. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Mark Groves. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We met through a mutual friend, Josh Genderson. Uh, shout out to Josh, one of the most wonderful humans that I know, and I've been fortunate. I've known him since he was probably 10 years old. And Josh is doing amazing things in the business world, uh, in the cannabis realm. He also is involved in the alcohol world, and Josh has a lot on his plate right now. And Josh uh, invited you to speak to his company, you and your friend Connor. And when he did that, he said, Brian, I think you might like listening to Mark and Connor and and being engaged in the workshop that they're going to put on. So I sat in on it and it was awesome and it was real and it was vulnerable. And it was very cool to see you guys operate with an organization like what Josh is building and they are growing so fast. And for them to take a couple of days off to get away from whatever they're doing, and especially a day, a full day with you and Connor to really dive deep into themselves was really cool to just witness. So grateful to Josh for connecting us. And afterwards I said, Mark, I'd love to have you on the podcast and you obliged. So thank you for your time. And I'm excited to learn more about you uh, and your mindset and your journey today. And what I don't know much about when it comes to you is, is your upbringing and what life mm. was like for you as a kid. And so I'm just curious if we could start there and I could learn a little bit about you and who you were as a kid and, and how you came to be you. Mm. Yeah, oh, God, the story from the beginning. Um, one, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so grateful to be invited to have this conversation, whatever this conversation is going to be. And uh, also just want to echo that about Josh and his company that it's very rare that a company actually takes a proactive approach to creating and curating their culture and having conversations that are about personal experiences uh, you know, it, it's fascinating that we avoid the very thing that is most dear to us in companies, that we avoid conversations about connection, unless it's about getting more sales or HR, you know? So it was uh, it was really such an honor to be part of that. You know, Mark, before you go into your story, I actually want to jump in there. So I think one of the other things is in the venture space, and I'm using air quotes as I say that, you find people are so focused on exiting or raising money and they don't often take time to really build a culture. I'm just curious for you because you have done a lot of these workshops and, and worked with companies, in, specifically in companies that are moving super fast and growing, how does it work for them to take time and pause and work with somebody like you? Well, they, it's almost so imperative with a high growing, a fast growing company because if you don't ground down on your values and what what you're going to operate by in terms of how you communicate and all of those different things, then the company and the culture will create itself. 
And that's not always a good thing because often the people who have the most influence on a culture are the most outspoken people, you know, and, and when you have these types of workshops, you get input and efforts from everybody. And it also creates a really safe space that by just having a workshop that's about open dialogue and how are we going to communicate and what are our values, when we do that, then we, we create a safe space psychologically for people. And when you look at like what determines the best cultures, well, psychological safety is one of the number one things. Am I safe to be myself? And, you know, that's true of families too. So there's such an integration between, I mean, human systems are human systems. So how does one do that? Well, I, I think we just have to take proactive approach to how do we want to design our culture and what do we want it to feel like? And of course, the leader has to emulate that. The leaders have to emulate that. Because if we're not living what we say is important to us, then it will always be what we do that influences more than what we say. And whenever there's a gap between what we say and what we do, it causes an internal red flag for an employee, just like it does in a relationship of any type. So that proactive approach is just, you know, hats off to Josh, because in a company that literally probably has a very hard time sparing a day to actually do that says so much, just to even invest in that says so much. I love that. It's so cool. Okay. Back, back to you and back to your <laughs> life. Uh, oh man, my family. So I grew up in Calgary in Canada, just North of Montana. And my mom is from Dublin, Ireland. And my dad is originally from around Alberta, which is the province that I grew up in. And um, gosh, my parents met in the early 70s. My dad was divorced before my mom. He had a daughter with his first wife. And my mom being Irish Catholic at, at the time, uh, she, she, you know, my, when her and my father got married, you know, it's sort of like outside the realm of everything you're taught in Dublin, Ireland to be attracted to and enter a relationship with a man who's divorced and has a child. You know, those are, the church doesn't tend to see positively on, on divorce. And uh, she, when she got married, my grandma did not attend their wedding you know, because she had, she had the belief that a divorced man wasn't a good man. And then she met my dad and she loved him. And my uh, brother and I are both born. I'm the youngest of the family. We were both born to my mom and dad. And then, man, we grew up in a very cold place. Although I'm sure it's probably not that different for you guys, but it'll actually get down to like minus, the only time Celsius and Fahrenheit are the same as minus 40. And that was definitely, that was a common temperature in the winter. Um, grew up playing sports, grew up, uh, in, did French immersion as a school family was, uh, I mean, a lot of fun. I never really thought of my sister as being a half sister. It was always, she was always raised with us as being the same. So I think there were a lot of positive messages in my childhood. My mom is an immigrant, so she had a hard time integrating into the community when she first moved to Canada. So one of the things I remember as a kid, one of the really positive messages I remember is that we used to have immigrant families over at our house like every second week because she wanted to help them integrate into the community. And so that was really cool because I was exposed to so many different cultures and so many different people and really just taught to invite openness and curiosity to everybody and that everybody is worth a moment. And, um, you know, we didn't, my dad is a researcher. He studied heart failure. And my mom, she taught language. She speaks, I think, seven languages. 
So she teaches linguistics and pronunciation. And so I was, I was really blessed to grow up in a home um, where communication, my father would be the one who'd ask how I feel about things. How's my heart? When I went through breakups, he was very much the one who'd sit down with me and explore how I was feeling and why I might be where I'm at. And so that again is another blessing because not many men are born to men who communicate effectively about their feelings. I'm curious about what sort of messaging your dad shared with you about divorce. You know, he never, we never explicitly communicated about divorce, but I would say just the model of what I grew up with was that divorce is okay, that you can find love after it, that everybody can change, you know, all those types of things. Um, and then as an adult, I remember asking my dad, maybe it was like four years ago, I just asked him, like, why did you get divorced? I never asked him that. I didn't know. And so he shared with me why. And I asked if he was emotionally intelligent before his divorce or was that the catalyst to a lot of his change. And so it really embarked on a, a whole nother understanding. There was never like an explicit conversation. And I think that was very much just what I experienced as a kid was a lot different than what my friends did because their parents got divorced. And so they were not a family of a, of a divorced, uh, one person divorced or two people divorced combining again. So they experienced the pain of that. And, you know, being Catholic at the time, very much the messages don't, you know, stay in love forever. And if you don't, then there's something wrong with you. And so that, that was sort of a message that was in conflict with what I had observed and I, you know, I think that's true of a lot of things that we feel a certain way about something we're taught is a rule of life, whether it's explicit or not. And we know the feeling is not congruent, that, that there's a truth that's deeper within us that is in conflict with what the rules and dogmas and doctrines are. And I think a lot of our work as people, as we age and grow, is to uncover who we actually are from who we're taught to be. What was what was Dad's answer when you asked him? What, was his emotional intelligence something that he had before? Or was it a result of? <laughs> well, he had, from my understanding, is they had gotten married because they had gotten pregnant, which again is such a truism of the '60s and '70s, and I'm sure still very much today, depending on where you live and what your religion is and your culture and your society. Um, and he said, no, <laughs> he was not as emotionally intelligent that. A lot of his decisions, you know, the partner that he was with at the time was chaotic and, you know, a ton of different things. And there was infidelity on her side. And so just learning about that, about my father was really fascinating because, you know, when I was older and wanted to leave a relationship, I think it, you start to see that the advice you get from people is often to prevent hurt they've experienced or to prevent hurt they're afraid of experiencing. And so when I look back, I remember I was engaged when I was 27 and I wanted to leave the engagement. And I remember him saying to me that uh, you're afraid, you're afraid of commitment. And I was like, uh, I think it's more than that. <laughs> like, I think I'm in the depths of my soul here, like I'm losing myself. And I remember saying to him, remember how you felt when you married your first wife? And he's like, yep. And I'm like, remember how you felt when you married mom? I'm like, yep. I'm like, were they different? He's like, yep. And I'm like, I feel the first way. And he was like, instantly like, 
okay. Like, we got this. You'll get through this. You know, my wife and I have talked about this as it relates to breaking off engagements. We've had friends who have done that. And I think there's a judgment that takes place amongst a lot of people of like, oh, well, you invited us and we have the hotel room and the, mm-hmm. maybe the airfare or whatever it might be. And my wife and I have, have really, we agree on this, which is it takes courage. And it, uh. it, it's like how great for people to end something before they get even more into it or before they have kids to your dad's point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually think I feel the same way about divorce. It's like we, uh, there's definitely even saying the word divorce. It sounds like a bad word. It's, it's got a heaviness like, to it. Yeah. Yeah. Like dirty or bad or heavy. But the reality is like, we shouldn't stay with people if we're miserable. And like that idea, like I hope if my wife is miserable that she doesn't stay with me. I mean, I like, I wish that for her and uh, I hope that day never comes, but like, I think divorce and breaking up an engagement or whatever it might be is actually courageous. And I'm not sure exactly why we, that's not our initial thought. Like that's certainly not my initial thought. That's not my initial feeling. My initial feeling and thought is like, but when I think about it, I'm like, good for you. Like that's, I think that's a good thing. Um, What's so culturally ingrained to shame divorce because in a lot of ways we celebrate so many things about relationship that if, if, if you're in a relationship, then it's confirmation that someone found you worthy of being chosen. So we put our worthiness often in our relationship status. If we're single, someone says, why are you single? Like you have some sort of ailment. And so it shows you that even in, there's a, a hierarchy within relationships too, where we say, if you're married, then you're more successful than someone who's engaged, who's dating, who's single, who's divorced. And so there's a hierarchy within relational status too. And, you know, if you look at it, you know, the, the problem with marriage is not divorce. The problem with marriage, the problem with divorce is that is bad relationships. It's, and not even to say bad, that's the wrong word. Is that we are connected or whatever. Yeah. We're not taught how to relate. We're not taught how to communicate and maintain deep intimate connections because everything we learn about intimacy and relationships is observed from our families, our media, our culture, Disney. And so they're, we're not actually taught a skill set. And, you know, there's, it's certainly a skill set. And everything we do that gets in the way of love is really a way to protect ourselves from being hurt that we learned. And so for me, I, I agree with you. You know, I think that that was uh, when I broke off my engagement with a really wonderful woman, that made it even harder, right? Because, like, wh- how, why don't I want to be in a relationship with this person? As I sort of explored it, you know, you start to see that that is really the reclamation of who you are, the standing in the truth of what is real for you is often comes at the cost of, I'm going to use the word betray, but I don't mean it in infidelity or anything like that. But I mean, it comes at the cost of the betrayal of what you've been taught. You know, because imagine if we were taught divorce is bad and then we're in a really painful, bad relationship. Why can't we leave? Because there's something about uh, we will be bad people or perceived as bad or failures if that relationship ends. And so we end up stuck in these prisons of social constructs that 
are not actually literal walls that we're in, but they feel like they are because social isolation and rejection are one of the most powerful ways to control the human mind and human behavior. Yeah. And even as I think about that, I think about people that are, they stay with a job or they stay on a career path and they're just don't want to shift from it and they, they stay with it or loyalty and the idea that stay loyal and the downside that can come with those types of things as well. Um, I'm also curious, you said that it's skills, like we can learn these skills as far as communication and relationships. Walk us through that a little bit. So what are some of the skills that you find create good communication or, or great relationships? Yeah, I mean, there's, there, uh, there's a quote from Eric Fromm that I love. His book is called The Art of Loving. He has more books than that, but that's a famous book of his. And he said that there's nothing that a human will feel at more and not take the time to learn than relationship than love. And, you know, if we were to become a physician, we would go to school, we'd study the body, we'd study surgery or whatever our specialization is. And then we would learn that. It would become our art. And love is an art. Love is a skill set. And that skill set would look like looking at what gets in the way. Where does your pain live still? How do you repeat patterns? You know, it's really about building relational self-awareness, which translates so much to how we work and how we communicate at work. Because, look, you might have more emotional resilience to not be reactive at work because the cost is greater. You might lose your job. And it's still a trigger. You know, wherever you get triggered, there's something that's waiting to be healed. And that's why relationships are the greatest fast track to your own evolution. They're the greatest. Everything that pisses you off is an invitation to grow. Everything that frustrates you, that triggers you, is an invitation to mastery in an area that you have not mastered yet. And so when you look at the relationship research and what's the predictive of the greatest uh you know, relationship partners, when we look back on someone's life, it will be generosity and kindness. And I think I would add two things to that that I think are absolutely imperative to today's desire for partnership. And this is true of leadership. This is true of management. This is true of being on a team is humility and curiosity. One, you have to be open to being wrong and not good at some shit. You just have to because you're not. You're not good at some things. And that's the gift of being a human is you still have time to get better at stuff. But if you think that you are infallible, you'll be a horrible relationship partner. Because every time your partner says, it hurts when you do that, or, hey, I appreciate if you were on time more, or whenever they say something like that, you'll be so in defense of your infallibility that you won't be able to hear the message that you need to grow. And curiosity, curiosity to understand your partner's world to understand where they come from, what has shaped them. And when we take the time to be curious about another, we invite curiosity about ourselves. And that's why I say at businesses, if you can learn how to master romantic relationships, every other relationship will be nothing. It'll be easy because there's something about how we respond in the face of rejection and abandonment that is really actually predictive of who we are. You know, it's I just read an article yesterday that talked about people that cheat on their spouse are more likely to cheat at work, which is kind of a a fascinating thing. And I I texted one of the clients that I work with, a CEO of a company. He's like, yep, it's all about core values, Um, which Hmm. was an interesting thought. Um, I'm curious to get your thoughts. 
without knowing the research, but you're sort of making these parallels of like what, if you can master the kindness, the generosity, the curiosity, the humility of a personal relationship, then you, what I'm hearing is you can bring that into the workforce where you have to work with teams where you might have a boss or you might have somebody who you're the boss of or whatever you want to call it. So I'm just curious to dive into that with you a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is such a, an opportunity for us because if you think about it as a leader, if someone gives you feedback that you're not good at something, if you do not have the humility and the curiosity to understand their world, you're missing an opportunity to grow and be better and to never have someone or likely not have someone feel like that again in your presence from your doing. And so this is this hyper level of responsibility. And I do agree that within the space of infidelity, it is about core values. Now, what happens though for a human is that we make allowances for certain behaviors in one area of our life. And what happens is, is that we can't identify that gap in any other area. So if I make allowances for infidelity, which there's many reasons for infidelity, that's far more complex. But just that behavior alone is a betrayal, a breach of trust. We're not keeping our word. We're probably chasing exhilaration and connection in a place where to avoid disconnection within what's in front of us. The It's easier to turn away than it is to turn towards with vulnerability. And we might have tried that and it didn't work. But when we make an allowance for that stepping out of our integrity, then we will not be able to hold that same level of integrity that would be higher otherwise in any other area of our lives because we've already made an exception for how we show up. And so in a way, think about from the perspective of like the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath is that a sociopath is made and a psychopath is born. There's more complexities to that too. But if you think about it, if someone had to sell drugs in order to survive and to live and to feed their family, they'll start to disconnect from the impact of selling drugs because they have to in order to live. So they start to mi miss the impact of their behaviors because it becomes normalized. And it's the same thing when we start to make allowances for incongruence in our integrity, which I would say for the most part, it's not always true, but it's mostly true, is that Within our bodies, though, we will feel the impact of that incongruence. We'll start to experience autoimmune. We'll start to experience inflammation, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. Our bodies will respond in a way that they know the truth about who we're being. There's a great quote from a woman named Carolyn Mace, who's a spiritual teacher, who said that in the 50 years of her work, there's one thing that she knows to be true always, and that is that liars don't heal that people who live in a world of lies do not heal because their body is in a constant state of inflammation. You mentioned sociopaths. And one of the things that I talk about with clients is, you know, if you don't feel emotion, that's no way to go through life. If you're not sad or angry or you're not ever feeling it, you can be a sociopath. And I don't think anyone's aspiring to, to be that. Can you talk about pain and love and, and how you think about emotion and how you wrap your mind around that? Well, a lot of people, when they are not connected to the impact of their behaviors, is because they're just not connected to their emotions. So in a psychological term, they might call this disassociation, that they are just, because it's been painful to live within their hearts, they've disconnected from their hearts. And that's usually a childhood survival strategy. It usually comes back to 
having to live within a place that was painful. Maybe they had an alcoholic or an addict parent or someone who just took out who was angry, abusive. And so we disconnect from the pain of our reality. Now, as an adult, that's not really helpful, right? Because we're disconnected from our own feelings. If you add to that socialization, like being a man, men are not socialized to be connected to their feelings other than maybe moderate levels of joy and aggression, not even anger, aggression, you know, celebrating, fighting, celebrating, you know, even in sports and competition, which can be healthy. I'm not saying that that isn't healthy, but we are not invited to be connected to all of our feelings. So if a man expresses grief or sadness, he's seen as weak. And those messages are still rampant, you know, and add to that the messages that marketing and media, especially media more recently, but I think it's been true since the feminist revolution, which is not a bad thing. But I think when the information's not curated, is that men are bad, men are murderers, men are rapists, men are, right? So there's so many things that go on in the human psyche that we have to remember that about 95 to 99% of what we do is unconscious. So our work of how we show up as leaders, partners, friends, parents, sons, daughters, whatever we are, is about building the understanding of what programs run in the background of us, including programs around emotion. So you might look at your childhood and you'd say like, what feelings were okay? Which ones were not? How did my parents handle conflict? Did they? Did they not? Because even... I've worked with people who are like, oh, my parents never fought. That's not a good thing because it teaches that conflict's not okay. So then we avoid conflict. And so the relationship back to emotion is found through actually if I was experiencing disassociation, which I can sometimes if I'm really hurting, is I will just breathe in to my body and take a moment and be like, there are feelings here. I don't know what they are and I can't feel them. I'm going to wait. And I wait and they might, I might just get a hint. And the practice is labeling what we're feeling because especially for people who have never really talked about their feelings or sat in them, it's about just saying like, I think that's grief and that's it. You don't have to do more than that. It's about creating a safe space for them to come up. And as you build more relational awareness, more emotional awareness, you become really like that, that sensitivity that we have that has been shut off because it hurt us is actually a superpower. The ability to feel into someone else's experience, to empathize, as you were saying. Like, as a leader, you want to experience empathy, but we've celebrated militant, driven, hustle, hustle, hustle leaders. And we've also said, if you want to get ahead, we have you know books that have taught women that they need to lead like men and men need to lead like militant, you know, that type of thing, where they're not connected to the impact and it's all about getting ahead and making more money and getting more status, which is, again, another massive influence on being a male is status because when it did, increases your mate value. When did you start leaning into your emotions? When, was there a moment that led to you doing that? Like, when did that come for you? Because certainly as men, to your point, uh, I'm even thinking about my kids and like when they start crying, how do I handle that? Um, you know, I'm just curious, like, when did you start practicing sort of sitting with your emotions? Yeah, as a kid, I, I mean, this is what I've been told, but it was, I guess, my experience, you know, I'm just thinking about it, is my brother gave me a nickname, Sensitor, because I was sensitive. And he said, if I was a dinosaur, I'd be a sensitive dinosaur. So, you know, even in there is in shame, right? Like shaming me for my emotional experience. And 
Certainly I was sensitive and always sensitive, but I don't think that's actually untrue for anybody. I think that we are born in that emotional state generally, and we are hurt out of it. And when my engagement ended at 27, I was in sales. I worked in sales for a long time, taught you know the science of rapport and influence and worked as a pharmaceutical rep, moved into specialty sales, all the things. And I was really good at it. I was exceptionally good at it. And I remember thinking to myself when my engagement ended, how did I get here? Like, how did I get to a place where I'm so disconnected from who I am? And why am I good at talking about everything but my feelings? This is not a skill set issue. There's something going on that's way deeper. And that began my journey of wanting to understand the science of connection, the science of this, of why is it that someone can be incredibly skilled in one area, but be totally disconnected. And so that became the journey of emotional understanding. I'd say in my most recent relationship that was four years, there was really a lot of emotional development that occurred in partnership, you know, learning how to manage my nervous system, learning how to sit still in conflict, learning how to listen better, learning how to express myself better. Um, so it's been an ongoing journey. And I think even the the ending of that relationship invited a much deeper inquiry into my relationship to grief and sadness and loss and all of the things. So it's, it's, it was definitely from being cracked open and I'd say hitting uh, quote unquote, like a rock bottom of sorts. Man, first of all, I was told I have two brothers and I'm the middle child. And I was told all the time, stop being so sensitive. I can hear it. Stop. Why are you so sensitive? Stop, stop being so sensitive. Like it's a and, bad thing. Oh yeah, like yeah. for sure. And so that's something that I want to chew on a little bit and, and digest a little and unpack for myself. I think it's it's something because I think that's part of what makes me good at my job is my ability to empathize with Absolutely. people and, yeah. to, and to be sensitive. But I think if you overuse something, of course it can be bad. If you're overly sensitive or overly, you know, tap into too much emotion, it, it, it can you can overindex on anything and you can overdose on anything. Um, so it, it's something for me to be aware of. Uh, and then it's not lost on me that you told the story about your dad and that him getting divorced and that opened up his ability to really think about emotions and potentially get better at being more emotionally intelligent. And then you're telling a story about being 27 years old and having a breakup that maybe the outside world was seeing as negative or, or doing the wrong thing or, or, or shameful or whatever it is. But that actually was the impetus to do the work that you're doing now. Have you connected those dots before with your dad and yourself? And I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. Mm, no, I haven't. But that makes me excited to talk to him about it. You know, that there's this, I think that all experiences of any type of rock bottom, losses of job, breakup, I think emotional ones offer, they're the most common, right? Like breakups, relationship dysfunction, not being able to handle conflict. All of these things are momentary invitations to understand who we actually are, to basically rescue ourselves from where we abandoned ourselves as kids. And it certainly was that. I mean, it was an ongoing journey, but I looked back and I thought to myself, like, you know, and this is more recent of maybe in the last four years, where I really thought, like, my sensitivity is actually my superpower, that the very thing that I shut off is actually the very thing that, you know, as you said, that that although it was shamed as children, 
it's what makes you good at your work. It's what makes you understand another person's world, which when you can begin to understand someone else's world, you can meet them in their world and invite them into a different one, which is not to say their world is wrong, but into an expanded way of seeing and being and, and existing. And I think for men, and, and this can be true for women too and anything in between, but for men, there's not really a lot of models of integrated emotional men you know, where often if I put up like a video where I'm talking about feelings, I might get some guy trolling me, you know, like you had a bad relationship with your mom or some, some bullshit. And again, that's this shaming because he's afraid of his own emotional experience. So he tries to limit mine. And I find that's fascinating when we start to see that people want to save other people from feelings they can't sit in. Like, what if I, you know, cause you did talk about that spilling of emotion, like when we're too sensitive, too emotional that's often because we've never really actually acknowledged the pain and the anger that lives below that. There's usually anger that hasn't been fully expressed and cleared that makes way for an integration. The sadness sort of always lives on the edge of our throat. And, and that's an invitation to even go deeper, which that's why I love this work. That's why I love life, because life is all about a constant invitation to get to know oneself better. And it might seem like it's about achieving outcomes or but your life will be fulfilling if you have great relationships like the there's a certain level of asset and income that you don't go once you make a certain amount of money money doesn't fucking matter anymore but with intimacy and the more you learn how to manage conflict and get deeper with conflict you get to know someone and yourself deeper than you've ever known and when you look at the outcome research and you look back, the Harvard Men's Study is a great long, longitudinal study that continues, that includes women now and includes the families of kids born to these men who were studied in, in, I think it was in the 30s or 40s it started. Anyways, when they look back on the person's life and they say, what was the greatest predictor of these people's health at 80? It was the quality of their relationships at 50. And that really says so much to how our bodies feel when we are connected, when we are in in safety and security and and we feel heard and understood. And I think we often think that's about other people hearing us and understanding us, but it's actually really about us being able to sit within ourselves. When you're 27 and you have this watershed moment, so I heard you talk about, hey, emotion often drives behavioral change yeah. uh, and pain can often be the indicator for us to change and adversity. And we, we hear that a lot. And I just read an article yesterday that talked about it's not actually adversity. It's your ability to learn from adversity. It's mm. not failure. It's your ability to learn from failure. And so at 27, what inside of you decided to go explore this? Like, what do you think allowed you to go and say, I want to go for this and I want to learn about this and I want to dive deep in? Can you try to explain what in you opened you up to that possibility? It was the sense of, I didn't understand how the world worked anymore, you know, because I, in order to leave that engagement, I had to go against everything I was taught, which was get married by 25 to 27, have kids by 30. And if you don't do that, there's something wrong with you. And so I sat in a moment, many moments where I was like, I'm a failure. I ended a relationship with someone who's good. What's wrong with me? And I thought to myself, like, all of a sudden I looked, I, I was paying attention finally. 
and I looked at my life and I thought, oh, wow, like I've been taught that you get married by a certain age and you have kids and then you stay together. Excuse me, that you get married and you have kids and then you stay together forever and you die in love. And then all of a sudden I realized like that's not actually how the story goes a lot of the time is people stay together and they don't like each other. And that's fucked up. Like, why does that even happen? And then we don't even cultivate any sense of actually understanding how to relate. And I started to think like, what is it that makes some relationships great and others not? Why do some last and others not? Why do we stay in prisons that we build ourselves that don't exist? Why do we follow narratives and do things we don't want to do? And just that pain of being lost in someone else's story and reclaiming my own, just that first moment of ending engagement and going against a system, that was where I felt like I was standing alone in an abyss and I needed to cling to something to begin to understand. And so it led me to reading Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And that was the first time I ever thought about life being about more than just becoming a provider and making a certain amount of money. I never thought about that. I remember sitting, reading that book, thinking like, holy shit, if man has a why, he can get through any what. I was like, what is my why? If I am here and I'm part of this species and this evolution, maybe I don't need to just get a job in finance or become a pharmaceutical. Like none of that ever made my soul sing. It was just what I was supposed to do and everything I really wanted to do. I was told you can't make money from that. And so it was really about this total loss of my sense of identity that made me cling to anything that started to make anything make sense because nothing made sense to me anymore. So how long did you stay in pharmaceutical sales and when did you eventually decide, hey, I want to do what you're doing now? Well, I went, so I started to study relationships and learn. I was at the end of 27 when that engagement ended. So at 28 and then I went back and studied positive psychology was just coming out at that time, Martin Seligman's work. So I saw a TED talk from Martin Seligman, I think in like 2008 or nine, I can't remember. And I was like, whoa, this is everything I've always wanted to know of like the science of thriving and flourishing and optimism and all these different things. So I went back to school, studied positive psychology. I started to write about relationships. I started to teach um, the courses at work where I was integrating and building these courses on how to, you know, the signs of rapport and influence and behavior. And then I started to teach the relational stuff I was learning in these workshops. And what was so fascinating is because, you know, if I do a workshop publicly, about like 85% of the attendees will be female, maybe 80. And that's mostly because the female brings her boyfriend or her partner to it, or it's a gay man. Or gay men. So it's fascinating just the the social narratives that hold people back from doing relational understanding. But in these workshops where I was teaching signs of rapport, influence, leadership, that kind of stuff, there was already permission for a man to sit in that chair, right? Because it was about professional development. But then they were so connected to what I was talking about. They were so curious because no one had ever like taught them this stuff that I was just getting so jazzed about it that like, this is my work. This is like giving someone permission to do work that they don't have permission to do publicly to abolish these like ideas and rules and doctrines. And I started to write about relationships. I started to build workshops and then I, I started my Instagram and then I left my job. So that was about 
it was, uh, I think it was six years ago that I started my Instagram. And what was it like to leave your job and go off on your own? Friggin' terrifying. Oh my gosh. I left, you know, pharmaceutical rep job. I was in specialty sales. So I left a nice six figure salary with a car and all the things. I didn't even know the price of gas because I had a gas card. I didn't know it had gone up from, you know, for us, I guess it's done in liters, but for you guys in gallons. So I didn't know gas had gone up so much. I was like, wow, this is expensive. And I left that salary and the first, I had started coaching. But man, I remember the first month I was out of that job. It was April 1st was my end day. And I remember my boss in December, I gave notice because she was just the most incredible woman. I remember she said to me, can you just stay till June? And I was like, no, like I could feel my body feeling like that is, nope, you're going to lose yourself if you stay, if you say yes to this. I had to leap, you know, I had some income, but not anything near what I had been making. I got a line of credit to insulate my extreme anxiety, but it was the birth of everything. You know, I think this leaping back into oneself that occurs from these moments of ultimate choice, of ultimate courage. And it brings me back from a line from the movie, Let's Build a Zoo, which is a weird movie to quote. But in it, the father's... Matt, Matt Damon's in it, right? Right. So it's got to be solid. And it's a Matt Damon line, of course. Yeah. And the line is that every everyone is capable of 20 seconds of absolute courage. And all it takes is 20 seconds to change your life. And I think about that of like to have the hard conversation, to choose a different way, to put your guard down, to be vulnerable, to leave a job. All of it takes just absolute courage. And on the other side of that is a greater depth of understanding of oneself and a reconnection to oneself and a reclamation of oneself. You mentioned courage and vulnerability and Brene Brown's work has become really popular and connecting vulnerability and courage. It's, it's really awesome stuff. If you're not familiar with Brene Brown, check her out, Ted talk book, whatever you want. Uh, she's doing great work for you though. I'm curious. You, you post all the time on Instagram. You have a podcast. Where do you draw the line on sharing and sharing the most intimate parts of you and your experience where's where's the line and where do you sort of say you know what that's something that's better off kept to myself yeah that's a hard line because i think uh that you know i think there's a a fine line between privacy and transparency and authenticity and try and privacy and that's a line i explore you know i if someone else told me i overshared then that would be their perspective of my sharing the beautiful thing is they can unfollow anything they don't like. That's the nice gift of choice. And I think because I don't ever want there really, there is no line between who I am on social media and who I am. And I think that's a rare thing. And so because it's so easy to pedestal people within an educational space, you know, you learn from a leader or a person that you admire and we pedestal them and in pedestaling anyone we make it not achievable for ourselves. So I often express that I'm in the trenches with people that I share the things that are hard. I share the realities of what it means to be a human in relationship or work or whatever that is. And I think in that is the gift of permission for someone else. And if I have to walk a path that gets a bunch of, bunch of bushes to my face because no one's walked it before, 
that's the that's the price of admission you know that's the work and i think in a lot of ways that line between privacy and transparency you know and most recently in my relationship that came to a close you know there are certain details that are our details they're not everyone's details and she has the right to her own line of transparency that i will always honor and you know that in the sharing of everything post relationship closing I asked for permission of what I could share and what I could not, and also holding on to things that are sacred between us. Otherwise, there's no sacredness. If everyone else knows your business, then your business, you don't have your own private world where you can explore things that we often have shame about, you know, thoughts we have, things we think, and everybody thinks crazy shit. You know, I think it's, it's, I remember doing a personality test and uh, at my old workplace uh, oddly, like five years into working there, I think it was like three years into working there, they just instituted these. And one of the questions was, "Has you have you ever thought of robbing a bank? And I guess the answer is yes, because almost everyone has thought of robbing a bank. But I felt like in that moment of test, you know, where it's like, I know what the right answer is, integrity wise. But I guess the answer is yes, because most people have. And so it's like one of those double tests, you know, where you're like, oh, screwed if you choose one or the other. So I think just when we start to share thoughts that often are private, um, we move the line of normality. I want to talk about Instagram for a little bit because I had on a guy, his name's Mitch Aguiar. Mitch was a Navy SEAL. He's a He's an MMA fighter. Uh, he'd be an interesting guy for you to connect with because yeah. I don't think Mitch is crying on air. Um, <laughs> There's and, not many people crying on air. And he, I mean, like, I think his motto is like, don't be a pussy. Like he, he, he's an alpha amongst alphas. <clears throat> um, but why I'm bringing him up is not because of that. My the reason I'm bringing him up is because he said serving for his country was a huge honor and it was a big deal, but his Instagram following has been one of the best accomplishments of his life. And it's been a massive place of fulfillment for him because Mm -hmm. he gets messages from people about the impact he's making and sharing his world. And so we often hear about the negative side of social media and we can jump into that if you want, but you now have over 500,000 followers. I mean, this is a real thing. And you said, I think six years ago is when you started it. So Mm -hmm. it's also a, a, a new thing for you. Um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on on social media. A, how do how do you think you've been able to build the following that you've built? And I don't want to stack questions, but yeah. um, some other things I'm curious about is where do you go awry? Like, where is there ever addiction that you feel about getting likes and um, you know reading comments? Are there negative sides to that? I'd just love to hear your relationship with Instagram and how it's been built and how you think about it and. Um, yeah, I just would love to hear you riff on that a little bit. Oh man. I, when I started it six years ago in December, at the end of December, it'll be, uh, I started it after a breakup, you know, and I think that's the fuel of so much emotional expression. And I think when we take pain and give it purpose and use it to propel us into transformation, it's one of the most powerful ways of change. And, when I started the Instagram, I had no idea how Instagram worked. You know, I remember posting a quote and then writing about the quote and people telling me, oh, Instagram's not for long form writing. You should just post pictures. And I'm like, stop telling me what I should do. This feels like my whole life. 
And at that point, I was feeling much more assertively rebellious, you know, where that type of comment would be like, watch me, like, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And that's a good place to be in because that fuels motivation. And man, when, when that all started, I think the success has come from a few things. One, I think we're just in a time where I was on the edge of conversations about mental health and relationship and just ahead of what is now, you know, mental health has really become a forefront of conversation. And also I would say that emotional health is becoming much more sexy. So, you know, whatever is sexy gets a little more attention. So I think I've just been blessed by being in a right place, right time, and also creating content that is relatable to people and speaking from an authentic, truthful place. Not to mention, I'm also a male and there's not many men talking about those things. So I, I have a bit of advantage in that. You know, I recognize the privilege that is innate in that. The other side of that too, is that I've never missed a day. I've never missed a day. I have um, a woman who is phenomenal, who runs my social media. And so I write all the posts and do all the things and she manages it and she does a freaking tremendous job. And that has allowed me to take a step back from what for certain experienced uh, like an addiction. And I remember early on in being on Instagram of thinking about posting. uh, It's easy if I posted like a female empowerment quote instant high performing quote. Uh, It's not even a question. 87% of my following is female. So, you know, that's, and not to mention that it's in the exact time that that type of quote would, it's in the exact time that that type of quote would be celebrated. And I remember sitting uh, at a cafe thinking about what to post. And I remember thinking, if you're posting for the applause of others, you'll never be truthful of yourself, of your own self-expression. So I made a rule that day that I would post what was wanting to be spoken out of my heart. And all my only outcome was to change one life. That was it, instead of getting likes. And that changed everything because instantly when I posted the thing that was different than what would do well, I would get a comment that would say, I needed this today. And that was it. That would, that became my measure of success. It's easy to place our self-worth in the performance of anything we do. That's why there's so many Instagram accounts that are based on butts and bodies and because it's easy to be celebrated for those things. And I'm not saying I'm dismissing the hard work of creating that body, but it's easy to get our worth placed in how we look. And hey, hey Mark, uh, I'm just curious, how do you feel when you get those messages? When you get those messages, I needed this today. What, where, what, is it, what does it do for you? I mean, it makes all the pain worth it. It makes all the fear that I've had about writing and becoming vulnerable and open and really getting to know my emotional self and building strength from that. I mean, it gives it all purpose. It's, you know, I've shared some incredibly vulnerable things. As you know, on my podcast, I had one where I talked about the closing ceremony of my relationship and I couldn't not cry. Like, and I didn't want to edit those out. Although I can tell you, I wanted to fucking edit those out. I didn't edit them out because I knew that I can't ask for people to be something that I'm not willing to be. And those are always the things that get most celebrated. That's what's crazy is I'm so terrified of those things. And then I do it and I'm detached. And all of a sudden, those are the things that other people go, wow, like that's what I needed. And I'm like, uh, why is it always the stuff that's hardest that <laughs> that does that? 
and and that continues to make the worth the work worth it to to take quote unquote grenades for other people um and to to forge a path that I don't even know where I'm walking sometimes that becomes just the way I live which is I always want to be on the edge of what I know. I always want to be stepping into some space of unknown, into a conversation I've never had, into a way of being I've never been. Because that means I'm I'm not living the same moments over and over and it means I'm expanding. It means I'm having to grow. I like to meet moments that I don't that require more of me. And that means that more of me has to show up. And inevitably, when we trust ourselves to do that, we can. It's I never would have said that 10 years ago. But I know that to be true. It's so cool. Like you, I, I was really interested in positive psychology and did a deep dive and continue to be. And I think it's fascinating. Uh, one of the shifts that I made was to not focus on being happy and focusing on feeling alive. And mm, for me, that, that was like, yeah, that was like a very free shift because happiness is grand and it's complicated and it's it's a process and it's a journey. It's not a destination, but alive, like, yeah, like when I say yes to certain things, I feel alive. This conversation right now, part of the podcast for me is getting to feel alive and you can feel alive a lot of different ways. Agreed. Um, you mentioned long form writing and I'm curious for you. It's so clear when you hear you speak either at a workshop or even right now that when you talk, you're stitching together words that are not coming out of nowhere. These are things that you've thought deeply about and reflected about. And it, appears to me that you are very philosophical and very thoughtful and perhaps in your head a lot. And so I'm curious, what does your writing process look like? How often are you writing? How are you capturing your thoughts? Uh, I'd just be curious to learn about how you think about writing. Oh man, I wish, I, I, I think the people who work with me wished I had more of a process, <laughs> but I'll literally just feel emotion and bring up a quote or write something and then I write about the thing and that is what bursts it. That's what, like, I know that there's something I'm thinking about or feeling and I need to put it into words. And so my process really is about that is, you know, I remember talking to Kelly Carlin, who's the daughter of George Carlin, the comedian. And I, when I was, before I started, I was in the interest of gathering information, you know, and learning like, what am I going to talk about? What's going to be my thing? What's my, and I said that to her, like, how do you know what your thing is? And she said, you find your voice by using it. And I'll never forget that because that has been the constant evolution is like allowing my voice to change, allowing what matters to me change, allowing my identity to always be fluid. And so my writing is a form of catharsis for sure. And it's also a form of figuring out who I am. You know, a lot of the times when I sit down to write, it just comes out of me, sometimes in the right order, sometimes in the wrong order. But it's just through that process that the right words get formulated in the right way. And I, you know, that's in this day and age, it's easy to get the wrong words in the wrong order and be punished for that. And I often, if I'm talking about something that has a lot of landmines on it, which is a lot of subjects in this, in this world right now, I will ask for the grace and the space to say things the wrong way and to get it wrong. Because if we're not having conversations that are hard, that people aren't having because we're afraid, then they never happen. And 
there's a lot of things I say that people are like, no, I totally disagree or that's no, no. And I'm like, that's great. Good. Cause that means I'm learning from you and you're learning from me. And, and I think the writing process is for me is about not having a process and that might cause someone else who's very organized to live in a different way. Like I don't generally prepare for talks. I just have an idea or a thought and I let it flow. So I know we have limited time left, but there's something coming up for me that I have to bring to the forefront, which is the Me Too movement. And talk about a landmine. I'm going to throw that right into the microphone. And the impact that you have, the reach that you have, you said, I think 87% of your audience is female. And you sort of mentioned earlier, I could put out a a female quote and I didn't know if it was in reference to the Me Too movement or- No, just like female empowerment, like a poem about having wings and having a sword and slaying everybody, you know, like that kind of thing. Cool. So it's not a reference to that, but when you said that, what popped into my brain was like, man, like how much has the world changed? I don't even know when the Me Too movement started, maybe two years ago. Um, Like as you're sitting where you're sitting and as a male- um, how do you digest and think about the Me Too movement? Oh, yeah. That is a landmine of landmines. My favorite landmine, actually. I I think it's a fascinating subject. I mean, it's it invites a lot of inquiry. One, it invites the ownership that men have uh, been in power and men have used power to manipulate. Esther Perel has a great saying that she says that she talks about how Men have traded sex for power, traded power for sex, and women traded sex for power. It's one of the oldest trading systems. And I think that's fascinating when you start to think about that, that really the Me Too movement is about the recalibration or the resetting of that, the bringing down from the positions of power. Interestingly, it's also evolution. So, you know, that's the hard thing is that people chose men of high power and high status because it was more likely to create evolution of offspring and just why we evolutionarily are drawn to signs of fertility in women. So, you know, these are just truths that exist from evolutionary theory. And I I think it'd be pretty hard to argue with some of those theories. I think as men, we avoid that conversation about me too, because I think we fear that we've done something wrong in our past. We're afraid of our own shame. You know, I, I would think it would be hard to find a man who hasn't leered at a woman who hasn't, you know, maybe touched one in a way they didn't like or anything like that. And when we avoid that conversation because of our own shame, then we just cultivate more of a a culture of silence. And when it's really about just listening, you know, and I keep learning about that more and more, you know, and, and watching my former partner go through all of the rage that comes up when women learn about the patriarchy and the systems of oppression. And then you look at that from also other intersections of what your gender is, what your sexuality is, what your color is. When we start to actually invite curiosity, I mean, I, it's not, it's not beyond my awareness that I am basically sitting, I am sitting in the most privileged position. I'm a straight white male and that's about as privileged as it gets and that is as as privileged as it gets. And I keep learning that in the conversations about race and sexuality and all those things is to just be curious and to just hold space, just hold space and listen. And through our work, through platforms like your podcast and mine, 
to give voices to people that might not have that space generally. So I think the Me Too movement brought up a lot of things. And it was originally actually created, I believe the woman is from Toronto, years before, and then it made popular by an actress. So it's a, it was great because it brought to the forefront the truth that there has been manipulation. And then look at all the freaking men of power. It was like dominoes were falling. And all of a sudden, one voice gave birth to so many voices. Like anything, though, done in extremes, you know, like that's a, a tough one. Like feminism, when it's done in an aggressive, man-hating perspective, I think what's hard is that we have to curate the messages for young men because they're often so afraid of themselves because they think there's something innately bad about men, but there isn't, you know, there isn't, there isn't at all, but it's like learning to teach them how to be sexually empowered and curious, but all people, but to also make consent sexy. Like, why can't we make consent sexy? You know, and I think we're doing a really good job of that, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of education that's lacking in the school system. That's exactly where my brain just went is like, man, sex ed, as we're around the same age, like what we went through to think, maybe this is the optimist in me to think about the possibilities of what that's going to look like in the next 10, 15 years for my kids. I kind of get excited about the possibilities that can come from that because we were definitely not talking about consent. We were definitely not talking about- We weren't even talking uh, about like, you might want to touch a boob. Like that was terrifying for my Catholic school- you know, wherever we don't teach education, we teach shame, you know, and, and rather than making people afraid of their sexuality, we should educate them and make them empowered with their sexuality, not to be afraid of, nothing to be afraid of. I, I want to end with finding out about what you intentionally do to make sure you're your best. And I ask most of the podcast guests that question. And I know when we met, you talked about stopping drinking alcohol and, and meditation practices, but I'm just curious, what are the things that really allow you to show up as as your best self from a day-to-day perspective? Uh, for sure, daily meditation. I generally get up earlier to do it. Um, what, what time? 6.30, 7, 7.30. Like, I just get up before the day starts. What kind of meditation? So I've been now hitting up breath work a lot. I've been doing a lot of breath work and that has been a really cool adventure. I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't drink. I don't, I, I did sort of get California sober for a bit as they call it, where I, you know, smoke marijuana every once in a while. But then I found that it was actually becoming a numbing agent too. And I wanted to be more and more connected to myself. So I quit that too. And it's been, because I, it's fascinating. Like now that I don't drink alcohol and I didn't quit cause I, you know, had some sort of crazy experiences, I just quit because I felt intuitively like I should explore that. I I can't imagine doing it again right now. I mean, who knows in five years, but or in one year. But I can't because I love being so connected to all of my experience, and I don't want to numb any of it. And it's caused me to look at where I'm afraid of what other people think, and where codependency can live in so many areas of our lives. And so my daily practice is exercise too. Exercise is absolutely essential. I get out at least once a week for a hike so I can be in nature. Nature for me is, I mean, the ultimate connector. I, it's where I go to recharge. It's where I go to be connected back to myself. 
Awesome. And to wind this down, I'd love to give you a platform and a megaphone to just promote anything that you feel like promoting or talking about. Certainly give us your social media handles and anything else that you think deserves uh, to get acknowledged. Well, thanks a lot for having me on today. I really appreciate it. You've given me a couple of things I'm going to talk to my dad about, my mom. So that's good. Uh, so you can find me on Create the Love on Instagram. Uh, if you look up Mark Groves, Mark with a K, you'll find me on the first pages of Google. So uh, YouTube, I have a video channel. I do most of my stuff on Instagram. And then I have a course on going through breakups, how to get through those. And I have a course on boundaries. And that one's... Uh, both of them are, I mean, I love both of them. The boundaries one I just released. And, you know, I say to people, if you have good boundaries, you have a good life. That's just true. That's awesome. So when we first met, I loved your energy. I love the way you're able to thread and stitch words together. Uh, and I appreciate your authenticity. I think you have a genuine soul and are doing this work because it's meaningful for you. Back to man search for meaning. So Victor mm -hmm. Frankel. Uh, Shout out, proud Victor. Yeah. Shout out to him. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. You can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. Mark, uh, looking forward to next time you come rolling through DC. And uh, if I'm over your way, you're still in Vancouver, right? Yeah. Yeah. Please let me know. I love a good yeah, dinner. Vancouver's probably top, one of the top best, most beautiful cities I've ever been to. So if I'm there, I will take you up on that and I'll drink plenty of wine. I'll drink free. free. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. I'll order two glasses and pretend yeah. one's mine. I'll take care of it. And uh, <laughs> just thank you for being you and, and looking forward to having many more intentional conversations with you in the future. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Love is an art. Love is a skill set. And that skill set would look like looking at what gets in the way. Where does your pain live still? How do you repeat patterns? You know, it's really about building relational self-awareness, which translates so much to how we work and how we communicate at work. Because, look, you might have more emotional resilience to not be reactive at work because the cost is greater. You might lose your job. And it's still a trigger you know wherever you get triggered there's something that's waiting to be healed 